This morning for the sermon, we are going to be looking at several different passages. The first one, Isaiah 40, chapter 40, verse 8. And this one, this sermon is on the supreme faithfulness of God, as Mike already mentioned. This is one of the greatest, the greatest virtues, attributes of God. Because when we understand God's faithfulness, when we understand what this means that God is faithful, it dramatically changes our relationship with Him because it allows us, it's really what causes our heart to let go and trust Him. How many of you here ever trust anyone or anything apart if, if that person or thing is, is not trustworthy? You don't. We're conditioned to trust those things and put our confidence in things that are worthy of trust. And this is what faithfulness is. It's there steady all the time. Reliable. Trustworthy. That's why you sat down in those chairs this morning. And you did it pretty confidently because there's a track record with the chairs. And they're known to be pretty sturdy. They hold you up. And if, but if what started happening all of a sudden is one by one, people started to plop into the ground and you're, you start to wonder or question or doubt the reliability of these chairs. And now you might check it out or be very tentative or you might start standing up really quick because this is what we do. If we see something is trustworthy, faithful, and it's, it's never changing, we put a lot of confidence in it. And this is why it's so important for us to understand and know the faithfulness of God. There's no way that your heart can release to Him and fully trust Him unless you know Him to be faithful. So before I really get going, let's pray and ask God to be merciful to us. Father, we are so thankful that You are faithful. We praise You this morning. We thank You for Your Word. And we ask, O oh Lord, that You would open our eyes to it. We would see you. We would know you. We would understand that how faithful you really are. Father, please grant us this understanding that we might have the full assurance of faith in trusting you. For we ask this in Christ. Amen. Theologian Calvin Miller stated, Over and over we learn that when God says he will do something, he does it even when it seems impossible. When he says something will happen, it happens. This is true for the past, the present, and the future. If this were not the case, if God were unfaithful, even once, he would not be God, and we could not rely on any of his promises. But as it is, not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave. 1 Kings 8.56 God is eternally reliable, steadfast, and unwavering because faithfulness is one of his inherent attributes. God does not have to work at being faithful. He is faithful. Faithfulness is an essential part of who he is. End quote. You know, our English definition of the word faithful is this. Long-continued and steadfast fidelity to whatever one is bound by a pledge, duty, or obligation. And I think that states it fairly well. This morning we're going to look at three distinct aspects of God's faithfulness in the Scriptures. 
And hopefully this truly will strengthen our faith in him. And the first one is that God's faithfulness remains true to the end. That's the whole part of what faithfulness is, remaining true to the end. If you don't remain true to the end, you're not faithful. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. So here we have the comparison between grass and flowers and God's word. And one thing we know about grass and one thing we know about flowers is they all fly, uh, they, they all fade, they, they all die, and then they have new ones have to come. So basically the point is these don't last, and we all know it. If you have, who here has irises? Not many of you. If you had them, you'd see how short-lived. <laughs> Beautiful flower, spring up. If you, if you don't catch them for a couple days, don't blink. You'll miss it. They'll die on you. Here today, gone tomorrow. And he says, this is unlike. There's so many things in this world that are here today, gone tomorrow. Even us, we're quickly passing. In God's sight, we're but a vapor. Our life is so short. But even though there's these things are temporary, he says, God's word remains forever. It's eternal. Numbers 23, 19 states, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Great question. (laughs) God is not like a man. If God speaks, if God promises, if God declares, will it not come to pass? Of course it will. If there's one thing about God that is that he remains true until the end, no matter what. And sometimes I know we often wonder about God's promises because what? He doesn't always do it in our timing. He's okay with making a promise and then taking 4,000 years to fulfill it. We're not so okay with that. We don't like it. You know, God promised and you said you're going to do this. Yeah, just hold on. But his time's not like our time. You know, for God to, to hold on for a several years for us feels like a blink to him, and yet we're freaking out and panicking often. God, fulfill your promise. But as 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Because in his very nature, he's faithful. He can't deny himself. That's who he is. God can never be unfaithful. He, he just can't be. God doesn't ever bail on us. God remains faithful to the very end no matter what because of who He is. He can't do otherwise. This is why despite Israel's constant rebellion and turning away from their God, He always accepted them back when they turned to Him. Man, go read Isaiah and large portions of Ezekiel and you'll see that God was constantly calling out to his people, constantly sending the prophets. They were constantly turning away from him, constantly going towards idols, constantly whoring after other gods. And he's constantly trying to woo them back. And then the very end, of, uh, if, if you look at Isaiah, the promises is that the day's going to come, and I'm going to gather you to myself, and I'll wash you, and I'm going to clean you, and, 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 and I'm going to change you. 
And I'm going to change you so deeply and so dearly that we're going to, we're going to be in covenant forever. What, God? This people that it's like this? This is what you're going to do to? Yeah, he says, I'm faithful. And it's all of it. And he talks throughout the, that, those sections about his covenant that he swore and promised. I covenant. Now I'm going to honor my covenant. It's an everlasting covenant. I swore he will swear to his own hurt. You know, just look at Jesus. His friends betrayed him, or one of his friends, Judas, betrayed him. His closest friend, Peter, denied him. And the rest of his friends forsook him in his greatest hour of need. Yet, yet, he went to the cross and died for his friends. Why? Because he's the expressed image of the invisible God. Faithful to the end. Faithful. Do you know faithfulness like that? Being betrayed? Being denied? Being forsook? It doesn't matter. I'll die for you. No matter what you do. And dying for his friends is the ultimate sign that Jesus is true to the end. Faithful to the end. You know, how easy easy is it to give up on friends who aren't loyal? Have you ever had a friend who isn't loyal? It's pretty easy to give up on those friends. How quickly do we want to bail, even in a marriage, when it's not going very well? Have you ever had a strained relationship? And if your marriage has been very strained at times, if you've lived long enough, been married long enough, you'll experience strain, difficulty, turmoil. And what do we want to do? What do we want to do when we're put and we're, we're actually absolutely just stressed out and the stress on the relationship, stress on the marriage? What do you want to do? Bail. How the can I get out of this? How can I get out? And we all know it in our hearts. We know how unfaithful we are, right? But God isn't like this at all. Even though we're faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. He's true to the very end. Faithfulness, it goes right to the very end. And we cannot even, we cannot go to the end and we cannot suffer long and we cannot undergo stress and turmoil unless we know this faithfulness. We know our God to be faithful. And this faithfulness has permeated our own lives so that we too can remain firm to the end. My God will never leave me nor forsake me, ever. Therefore, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we make bonds and covenant bonds with one another. We make marriage bonds. Listen to what we're saying. We're, we're covenanting, just like God covenants with his people, to bind ourselves to you. But we, we don't understand this, is gonna, this binding and bonding is going to cause a lot of turmoil and pain. But what does faithfulness look like? Enduring to the end. Till death does us part. But you can't go to the end unless you know the one who will never leave you nor forsake you, who's done all that he has for you. You've got to know that kind of faithfulness in order for you to be that kind of faithful. You know, it's easy to be loyal, isn't it, when everything's great? It's easy to say we're faithful when everything's going wonderful. You just, you know, saying I do on that wedding day, 
That was easy. I love you. They're beautiful. They're just, oh, I want to spend my life with this person. You know, you, you will, you're really willing to enter into covenant till death you part? Oh, yeah. Forever. <laughs> okay, let's do this. And now let's ask, 7, 8, 10, 15 years later, would you still jump up and say, I do, even when it's nasty and it's gotten ugly? Well, that, my friends, will test your faithfulness. Are you faithful? God's been through a test way worse than you. And you know, this is the crazy thing about Scripture. If you want to look at his faithfulness, he's been tested. He, he, he has suffered long, more than, longer than anyone ever could. And he's remained faithful to the end. He's kept his promise. And you know, I just think if you read the Scriptures from this perspective, the unfaithfulness of God's people and the faithfulness of God, you'll see that we're continually unfaithful and God is continually faithful throughout the pages. There's a, there's a theme throughout. He is faithful to the end. He keeps his word. He keeps his promise, even if he has to suffer and suffer and suffer. Our God is awesome because he's faithful. The second aspect of God's faithfulness I want to look at is that God's faithfulness does the right thing no matter what. Psalm 119.75 says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness, listen to this, in faithfulness you afflicted me. Did you hear that? David the psalmist was inflicted by God in faithfulness. This means that an aspect of God's faithfulness is that He's willing to inflict pain for our benefit, even if it costs Him. This carries the same idea. This idea is, is carried through in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6, which says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Indeed, the wounds that a good and loving friend bring upon us are out of nothing but good. We know if, if a faithful and loving friend brings rebuke or brings correction or brings something that hurts us, we know they're for our good. Because wounding a friend, you know, here's the odd thing about it, is that it brings affliction upon the one who's, who goes to wound a friend. It's, it's not very easy. You know, have you ever, have you ever known, had a difficult conversation or a correction or a rebuke to make to someone you've loved? The one who brings it, it's just as difficult for them to bring it. This is why he says these are, these wounds are faithful. They're faithful because what they're doing is not easy. It isn't easy. And you can only do it if you love the person more than you love yourself. Do you realize that? You can only bring this affliction. You can only bring this wound if you love them more than you love yourself. Because if you love yourself, you want to protect yourself. You don't want the person to think ill of you. Not only that, you actually have to think of that other person's good ahead of your own comfort. Because this is going to bring great discomfort 
for yourself. We all know it's much harder to confront and rebuke than it is to let things go. We've all shrunk back from confrontation that was absolutely necessary because of our fear and unwillingness to walk through the pain. That's why their faithful wound are the wounds of a friend. And this is why God even he inflicts David in faithfulness. But you know what? Here's one thing about God. God is not unwilling to suffer for the good of others. He is more than willing to suffer for our good. And you look how often we're not willing to suffer for one another's good. We're not willing to walk through difficult situations. But just listen for a second. I'm going to read this story about Jesus with the Pharisees. And And there's other religious leaders here as well, lawyers. And this is an extremely bold encounter that would have um, been hard to even witness, I think. I would have probably crawled under the table as it happened. Luke chapter 11, verses 37 and following. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. And so he went in and reclined at a table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Can you imagine not washing your hands before dinner? All you moms can understand. (laughs) And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Now that was at dinner and guest house. He says, but give, give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. (laughs) And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of the prophets shed on the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Pass the peas, please. Wow. I'm always startled by this. Because this would have been the most awkward dinner ever. That would have been painful as a disciple to sit there and watch and listen to. 
I, I, I just even couldn't imagine the look on the Pharisees and the lawyers on their face. But here Jesus, he, he speaks, he knows these guys' hearts are so hard that what they need to hear are hard realities. It's the only thing that will crush it. You know what? They say, how are we going to break this big rock apart? Well, it's going to take a big hammer and you're going to have to swing real hard. Well, who wants to do that? Who's willing, who's faithful enough to do that? Jesus. He's willing to, look, did you hear what he, did you hear what went on there? He's willing to inflict pain for their good. He's not just doing this. He's not doing it to offend them or ruin a dinner party. Do you realize that later on, if you, if you project out and go down the road, I think Jesus is plowing a lot of ground and dealing with a lot of stones and rocks, and it's the reason why there's fertility in the ground that his disciples get to reap in the book of Acts. Many Pharisees end up believing, and it's because part of it is just crushing that happened to them, this blow that they, they had to receive and hear. They're, they're stony hearts, and for stony hearts that are just so resistant, they need to hear words like this. Now, one thing we can't take away from this is think, oh, okay, faithful means I go up and pound, punch people in the face all the time. No, sorry. If you want to see Jesus being, what is faithful? He, he, he's willing to inflict pain for our benefit and good. And in some cases, he jumps in and he's defending and guarding harlots and prostitutes and forgiving them and cleansing them. But you have to understand the wisdom here. These are truly, truly hard-hearted people that needed a massive blow. And Jesus faithfully delivered it. Now, if we have the ability to discern what tenderness, tenderness requires a very, very tender hand. It's like a tender little flower. If you go at it aggressively and try to, to snip it off with a hammer, you're going to be in trouble. It's the wrong tool for the job. Faithfulness requires discernment. Now, we should never read this and think that's how we need to be. Faithful means, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now I'm just going to go wound all my friends. No, that, that's, that's not faithfulness in that case. That's a lack of discernment. And the Proverbs also talks about a wise rebuker, a gentle rebuker, one who comes alongside the pleasant words of a, of a, of a, well, a mouth well articulated. And it talks, about, it talks about us approaching people with care and love and tenderness, truth and love. And I, Jesus, Jesus was perfect at it. But with one mark of faithfulness is you're willing to suffer your own shame and your own hurt in order to benefit the others. And that, I tell you, it was not easy for Jesus to say those words in that context. But Jesus was willing to suffer their rejection, to suffer their hurt, to suffer pain from them for their good. That's faithfulness. Faithfulness does the right thing no matter what. Psalm 15 talks about who is this faithful man? Is this someone willing to swear to their own hurt? Their own hurt. They will put up and they will shut up, and they will take it, it just as long as it benefits the people around them. Now, that's the kind of love and the kind of faithfulness that garners trust, doesn't it? And that's the last particular aspect I want us to look at in regard to God's faithfulness, the fact that His faithfulness 
is trustworthy. Because faithfulness is trustworthiness. Psalm 117, 7 through 9 says, The work of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people and he commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The point here is that God, God's word is trustworthy. And it isn't just trustworthy because a believer might say it's trustworthy. I say and I declare God's word is trustworthy. Well, so, okay, you said that. Nice, Dean. Thanks. That's not why it's trustworthy. It's trustworthy because it's been tested time and time and time again and proven itself trustworthy. For something to be trustworthy, it has to prove itself, as I said at the very beginning about the chairs. It's got to prove that it's faithful and it's worthy of your trust. God's word within itself, within itself, right here, this word of God, within itself, self testifies and proclaims. It's its own witness to its validity, to its truth, to its trustworthiness. Let me just show you. I read something about, from a guy, his name was Dr. Peter Stoner. Now, I'm not sure you should believe anything from a black guy's name Stoner, but, uh, he wrote a book called Science Speaks. And he was the chairman of the mathematics and astronomy department at Pasadena City College until 1953. So he's in, this was a ways back. And then he moved to Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California, and there he served as chairman of the science division. And so he calculated the probability of just eight messianic prophecies being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And it needs to be noted that all these estimates were calculated as conservatively as possible. The first one is that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. So he took the average population of Bethlehem from the time of Micah to his time, 1958, and he divided that by the average population of the earth during the same period, which was 7,150 divided by 2 billion, which equals 0.00003.75%. No, <laughs> not much at all. Highly unlikely. So that's the first one. And the second one is a messenger will prepare the way for Messiah, Micah 3.1. So one man and how many the world over has a forerunner? In this case, John the Baptist, to prepare his way. The estimate is one in 1,000. Again, these are all conservative numbers. Thirdly, the Messiah will enter Jerusalem as a king riding on a donkey, Zechariah 9.9. One man and how many who has entered uh, Jerusalem as a ruler has entered riding a donkey? The estimate is one in 100. Fourth, the Messiah will be betrayed by a friend and suffer wounds in his hands. Zechariah 13.6. One man and how many the world over has been betrayed by a friend resulting in wounds in his hands? The estimate is one in 1,000. Fifthly, or sixthly, what are we on? Fifthly, the Messiah will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 11.12. Of the people who have ever been betrayed, one in how many has been betrayed for exactly 30 pieces of silver? Estimate, one in 1,000. 
Sixthly, the betrayal money will be used to purchase a potter's field, Zechariah 11.13. One in how many, after receiving a bribe for the betrayal of a friend, has returned the money, had it refused, and then experienced it being used by a, to buy a potter's field? One in about one in 100,000. The Messiah will remain silent while he is afflicted, Isaiah 53.7. One man, and how many, when he's oppressed and afflicted, though innocent, will make no defense of himself? Estimate, one in a thousand. Next, the Messiah will die by having his hands and feet pierced, Psalm 22.16. One in how many, since the time of David, has been crucified? Estimate, one in 10,000. So multiplying all these, so these are, this is eight, eight prophecies about Jesus. Multiplying all these probabilities together produces a number rounded off of 1 times 10 to the 28th power. Dividing this number by an estimate of the number of people who've lived since the time of these prophecies, 88 billion, produces a probability of all eight prophecies being fulfilled accidentally in the life of one person, that probability is 1 in 10 to the 17th power, which is 1 in 100 quadrillion. <laughs> to give this some perspective, Stoner asks the reader to imagine filling the state, the state of Texas, knee-deep, knee-deep in silver dollars. Include in this huge number one silver dollar with a black check mark on it. Then turn a blindfolded person loose in this area, this sea of silver dollars. The odds of that blindfolded person finding that marked coin, the first one he picks up, would be, would be the, the same as eight prophecies about Messiah being fulfilled. That, those are the odds. Now, the point, of course, is that what people say when people say that the fulfillment of these prophecies about Jesus was accidental, they don't know what they're talking about. That's insanity. Keep in mind, here's, here's an additional thing. Keep in mind that Jesus did not just fulfill eight prophecies. He fulfilled 108. Now get a load of this. The chances of fulfilling 16 prophecies is 1 in 10 to the 45th power. That's a 10 with 45 zeros after it. When you get to a total of 48, the odds increase to 1 in 10 to the 157th power. That's just 48. We're talking 108. So... 1 in 10 to the 157th power is a number simply, I don't even know, I don't know what that is. I mean, do they know what it is? <laughs> Math guys here, do they know what that number is? I think that's why you have to just put it to the power of. I don't think, has it been named? I don't think it's been named. It's simply not possible. It's simply, I mean, of course, there's always, they say, well, there's always a possibility. Yeah. So, yeah, what you're saying is there's a chance. <laughs> yeah. This is when we say the word of God self-witnesses, self-testifies. 
This is what he said would happen, and it happens. Say, here it is, folks. The word of God proven. That's that's an impossibility. It's proven nobody but God could do such a thing. The God that we claim is, is the God of this Bible. He's faithful. This is why he does. This is why he prophecies and declares. He says, this is what I'm going to do. And he'll say it hundreds and thousands of years before he does it. And then he does it. And then he has it recorded in here. And it testifies. It's self-testifying. We don't need to defend it. It defended itself. Just read it and study it. Are you interested in knowing? Go after it. It'll prove itself. The problem is people like to name call and say things about it and say, oh, yeah, this is just one of another religion, uh, so on and so forth, and make all kinds of comments about it. Have you read it? Have you studied it? Have you examined it? Have you tested it? Because it self-testifies. The witness is within it. I don't need to defend it. Just go read it and just see how it proves itself. There's a second section in Stoner's book. This whole book is about these statistics and the impossibilities and just mind-blowing stuff. He entitles this section Prophetic Accuracy. And one by one, he takes major biblical prophecies concerning cities and nations, and he calculates the odds of these prophecies being fulfilled. And the first one, I'm not going to get into all of of this. He goes on and he goes through Ezekiel 26, where he's talking about Babylon, the captivity. And there's, there are, I believe, nine or ten different prophecies, each one exactly fulfilled, historically documented. This is what happened. And then he says, Stoner proceeds to calculate the probabilities of the prophecies concerning Samaria, Gaza, Ashkelon, Jericho, Palestine, Moab and Ammon, Edom and Babylon. This guy has some time on his hands. <laughs> he also calculates, he likes to calculate odds, I think. He also calculates the odds of prophecies being fulfilled that predicted the closing of the Eastern Gate, Ezekiel 44, 1 through 3, the plowing of Mount Zion, Micah 3, 12, and the enlargement of Jerusalem according to prescribed pattern, Jeremiah 31, 38 through 40. Combining all these prophecies, he concludes that the probability of these 11 prophecies coming true, if written in human wisdom, is 1 in 5.76 times 10 to the 59th power. Once again, this number is beyond the realm of comprehension. And no sane person could ever say, oh, it just happened, it just worked out that way. No, it didn't. There's no, do you realize there is no other book on the planet like this? None. Not one other book that does this kind of thing, that prophesies, declares it's going to come and it comes the way it does. Happens the way it happens. Every, you know, people like to try to say, oh, how could you say that? How could you say you're the only one true religion? How could you say that's true and say all these other religions, you know, oh, that they're wrong. You're right and they're wrong. How arrogant of you. Arrogant? Listen here, one thing. Just on the face of it. One, go give this a read and study it and see all the prophecies declared and all the prophecies fulfilled and and it'll blow your mind on that category alone. Two, go look at every other world religion. Every single one of them was started by a man whose mental stability is in question greatly. Every one of them who goes off 
by himself, has a dream or a vision, writes it down and brings it to the people. Every one of them. Oh, one man goes off. He's a little bit suspect to start with. He's a troubled soul. Goes, has a vision. And then a lot of the portions of stuff, you kind of, you, if you read it, he was stealing from here. I'm telling you, how can we say that we're the only one true religion? Easy. It's self-verified. I don't have to explain it. Go read it. Study it. And it will prove it to you. But you just don't care. You don't want to do the work. It's too much work. Have you read the whole Bible? Have you studied it? Have you researched it? Have you checked it out? Have you examined it? Have you tested it? Have you wrestled with it? Have you tried to prove it wrong? Because most people who try to prove it wrong end up finding that it's right. Why? Because it's the Word of God faithful until the end. It's trustworthy. Now let me ask you, why can you trust the Lord with all your heart? Because He's trustworthy. He's faithful. He's loyal. And He keeps His Word. It's true, folks. This isn't some game. It isn't imaginary. It isn't made up. It isn't some preacher up here talking, declaring about it. Test it and prove it. Do you doubt it? Don't just doubt it and, and say you doubt it. Test it and prove it, and it will show you every single time this is indeed the living and active words of God. Here's another question, though. God is trustworthy. Can we trust him and do so without, with, while we lean on our own understanding? No. You must trust in the Lord with all your heart. And something else you must not do is lean on your own understanding. Because when you lean on your own understanding, what do you do? You try to make sense of things. And God is very into doing things that don't make sense to us. He kind of likes impossible scenarios. He kind of likes the odd stats against them. He kind of likes to, well, let's just wait. Why not wait till the last minute? <laughs> because I don't like that. I don't like waiting till the last minute. Could you, could you just, I, I want his faithfulness to be according to my own understanding. I want to get it. I want to see it. I want, I want God to be like the chair. I see it. I get it. It makes sense. It's physical. Yeah, I'll sit on there. Okay, I'll sit on there. That's, that's fine. But how many of us, if God walked us to the edge of a cliff, a thousand-foot cliff, and he said to you, jump, it's going to be fine. <laughs> How many would jump? Well, God, um, I know you said it's going to be fine. But could you like put a net down there or something that's big, got big springs on it? When I hit it, I, it kind of would guarantee me that I'm going to be okay. No, no net. You're going to be fine. Um, you sure there's not another way here, huh? <laughs> no, absolutely sure. Jump. I've got you. Are you afraid? You think I'm not trustworthy? Well, no, it's just that every single time that most people jump off thousand foot cliffs, they die. That's just, that's just what usually happens. <laughs> and so I'm a little nervous. 
Oh, I know. I know you're a little nervous. And this is always the problem, is because you love to lean on your own understanding. And you think your own understanding is more of a sure bet than my word. That's the problem, Dean. I know. The reality is, God's word is more sure than any net with springs on it. And this is what he tries to teach us in life. Do you know, do you want your faith to grow? Do you want to be stronger in faith? Oh, Lord, make me strong in faith. Okay, but that's going to require some working out. We got to work out your faith. So you're going to, what God does in your life is he tests you. He tests you. He tries you. He inflicts you. Why? Because he's faithful. And what he, you know what pleases God more than anything else? Trusting him. I trust you, Lord, no matter what. That's what, that's what I, my desire, that I would implicitly trust the Lord no matter what. No matter what. I'd love to be there, but my faith is weak. And so what I have to do is I just, you know, whenever we can, whenever we're in situations, especially impossible situations or situations that are past our own understanding or difficult or complex, and we're trying to figure it out, we're trying to gain control, we're trying to say, God, I know you said that you provide, I know you did, but uh, there's no money in the bank and there's bills coming. I know you're a big God, but this is bigger than that. I don't know, this, this is freaking me out. God says, this is perfect. This is a perfect scenario. Because you get to grow in your faith, and then you get to see how I'm faithful. Sometimes Christians, we can't figure it out. Like, why is God doing this? Why is he stressing us out like this? Why is he putting us in this situation, these circumstances? God, what are you doing? What am I doing? I love you too much. For you not to know me and know who I am and to trust me and find me faithful. I want to be faithful towards you. So many Christians are so good at praising God. Everything's going great. God's a blessing me. Life is good. Bank account's full. Kids are behaving. House is clean. God is good. Let's see what Mike was talking about this morning. About thankfulness. The only way you can give thanks the only way you can say, you can, you know, more money in the bank, you know, the kids aren't behaving, don't got much food, house a mess, and you hear, oh, God is awesome. God is good always, all the time. The only way you can do that is in faith believing. That's faith. That's not leaning on your own understanding. That's trusting the Lord with all your heart. The Lord will provide. What are you rejoicing about? What are you giving thanks about? Why are you so happy? Because God is good always. Always. Man, if I looked at your life and see who's God, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't be so quick to say always. How about you say sometimes? Nope. Always. Always? Always. Because he's faithful. He is faithful. Watch him. He'll provide. Wouldn't it be great to live like that? That Have that kind of faith? Oh, no, my God's going to provide. I guarantee he's promised. What are you, nuts? You see your life? You see what's going on? Oh, yeah, I see it plainly. I'm so thankful. What? Thankful? You should be cussing God out right now. No way, man. No way. My God is faithful. Now, that, you know... 
that, that, my friends, is living right there. Trusting in the Lord with all your heart and leaning not on your own understanding. Why? Because he's so darn faithful. Every time. Our God is supremely faithful. Amen. Father, we thank you with all our hearts because you truly are faithful. And I ask, O Lord, that you would forgive us. Forgive me, forgive all of us for doubting, for questioning, for wavering. Oh, how we so often play the part of a fool. We don't trust you. And we don't give you thanks because we doubt you. Oh, Lord, please help us to see, help us to understand, help us to know you. And just live lives of complete and utter confidence in you. Oh, God, grant us this grace, for we ask it in Christ. Amen.